Principal Matters Podcast, Episode 137. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast. Each week, I bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, I want to talk about reaching and teaching children exposed to trauma with my guest, Dr. Barbara Sorrells. As I've traveled through my state and visited with school leaders across the nation, a common conversation I have is how do you support students who've experienced trauma? And how do you manage that dynamic of making sure that you're meeting the needs, the social emotional needs of your students while also maintaining a school that feels safe and productive for all students? Well, Dr. Barb Sorrells is an expert in child development and experienced in working with students through trauma. She's a consultant, an author, and a practicing educator who still works with students even today in those kinds of settings and training educators how to best serve students in their schools. So I'm really excited to jump into this conversation. And as I do, I just want to wish you a happy holidays for those who are listening around the Christmas time. Thank you so much for the work that you do every day serving students because what you do matters. If you'd like other free resources like this one, you can find all my resources at my website at williamdparker.com. Dr. Sorrells is the executive director of the Institute for Childhood Education in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a professional development and consulting firm for those who live and work with children. She has more than 20 years of childcare, kindergarten, and elementary teaching experience, as well as more than five years experience teaching graduate and undergraduate students at the university level. Dr. Sorrells also presents and works with teachers and school leaders not just in Oklahoma, but across the U.S., and she's the author of two books, including Reaching and Teaching Children Exposed to Trauma. Dr. Sorrells, welcome to Principal Matters, and feel free to fill in the blanks to that introduction with any details you'd like listeners to know about you. Well, thank you, Will. I think you did a pretty good job of that, and of course, as as we talk today, I'll probably share a little bit more of my story, so thanks for that introduction. I had the privilege of hearing you present at the odds conference here in Oklahoma City when you spoke to a room full of teachers, practitioners, special education directors about working with students in trauma. And I would love for you to share some of that story with Principal Matters listeners. My first question is, how did you begin your work with students experiencing trauma? Well, actually, I think it began way back in the 60s. And at that point in time, I really didn't realize what I was dealing with or looking at. But I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. And of course, in the 60s, Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty was in its heyday. And so I was very involved in inner city work all through high school, all through college. And, you know, I, I started wondering, you know, why why were some of the kiddos so challenging um, with regard to behavior? And I really wanted to understand. And then over the years, I actually um, owned and directed a couple of early childhood programs in Washington, D.C. and uh, Fort Worth, Texas. And it seemed as the decades went by, we saw more and more kids who were struggling. And I began to notice that all of them had significant challenges in their background, which made me wonder what is it about loss? And so I began to read and research and not too many people had answers really until the late 90s. And then as a university professor, we were 
supervising first-year teachers, and the number one question for students was, how do we help these children who have behavioral challenges? And that's when um, I really, really began to search for answers. And in 1998, I went to a conference in Toronto, Canada, where I ran into Dr. Bruce Perry. Finally, I was so excited. Finally, someone did have some answers. And since that time, I've had the opportunity to, in a sense, rub shoulders with some amazing people who do some of the hardcore research in this area and have uh, enormous insight. And and so it, it's really through just my work with teachers that and helping them to find ways to deal with children that really, really got me to seriously look at this over the last couple of, really, I guess now it's been 20 years. <laughs> well, one of the things that I've really admired about your work, Dr. Sorrells, is your understanding of the brain science that affects the ways that kids think and, and learn, uh, but also your, your work as a practitioner. You've never stopped working with children directly. Uh, you still work with students even now. I'd love to hear more about that work in, in just a little bit, but my next question is how has your understanding of brain science influenced the way that you work with students? Because you've engaged with a lot of great research, and that's something that I know that you're helpful in teaching teachers to think about when it comes to the ways that students' brains affect the way that they learn? Well, you know, the brain is really the center of pretty much all that we are in terms of thinking and emotion and behavior. And so understanding how the brain works, I think, is essential because one of the things that all the research has shown us is that trauma, especially trauma early in life, literally changes the structure and functioning of our brain. And so understanding those mechanisms, I think, is critical to understanding behavior and how to approach children. And it's also the piece that I think is important because if, if we just tell teachers, try this strategy, try this with this child without helping them understand the mechanisms of the brain, they are less likely to follow through. I believe that when we look at these children, it is critical that we understand the brain. And I think one of the key pieces that has informed what I do is the understanding that the brain builds from the bottom up. That brain stem is the only part of the brain that is fully functioning at birth, but yet it is the seat of all of our regulatory processes where that process begins. Now, of course, there are other parts of the brain that become involved, the executive functioning. But really, when you see a child who has disorganized behavior, you're looking at a child who has a disorganized brain. That behavior is a reflection of what's going on within that brain. And so understanding how it works, understanding how it develops, because when we're trying to help a child recover from trauma, basically what we're trying to do is help the brain heal. And the brain will heal and, in a sense, reorganize itself in that same developmental trajectory that it grows um, in, in early childhood. And I think one of the, the key phrases is that in order to provide healing, the, the pathway to healing recapitulates the path of development. So understanding that basic brain development um, and how to recover that in a developmentally appropriate way is very critical to helping children. Can you give an example of, let's say you're trying to work with a child who you know is not developmentally, is not reached the appropriate developmental stage that they're in because perhaps of trauma? What is maybe happening inside their brain that we just can't see that would help us to understand 
as teachers and educators, what may be going on inside this child's brain who's experienced trauma? Well, there's a number of things that are going on. For example, we had a little guy that came to us at five that was struggling in public school, uh, operated a a therapeutic preschool program the last two years, um, just two mornings a week. We had this little guy that was just out of control, you know, running here and there in the classroom. And so one, and looking at his history, he um, was raised in a domestic violence situation, a lot of um, witnessed a lot of violence, experienced a lot of neglect. And so um, that immediately tells me that one of the things that's going on is that his brainstem is most likely compromised in terms of organization. So with this particular child, we know that patterned, repetitive, rhythmic touch, sound, and movement help to reorganize the brainstem. So one of the things that we did with him is lots of rocking. In fact, we started his day off um, by rocking him in a rocking chair and reading a story. He loved to sing, and in those moments when he became dysregulated, we would begin to sing to him. One of his favorite songs was Skidamarinky-Dink, and we could get him back into regulation by simply singing and engaging him in a hand-clapping rhythm. And again, that what, what that was doing for him is helping to bring regulation, bottom-up regulation to his brain. Because so, so often we think in terms of self-regulation as executive functioning, being able to cognitively identify what I'm feeling and then be able to produce out of my head a strategy to help myself. But when you're dealing with children who have profound early trauma and, and the behavior that demonstrates um, you know, profound um, dis- dysregulation and disorder, what these kids need is bottom-up regulation. That's somatosensory regulation that we provide through movement, through touch, through that rhythm that's so critical to them. I remember one time when you and I were speaking about children and trauma, and you were describing some of those patterns and rhythms that are important for students to relearn or to rebuild functions within their own thinking or brains towards a more organization that I was remembering a story from my own work in in the secondary level. I had a a 14-year-old boy at the high school level several years ago who was struggling and was displaying a lot of the same behaviors that you're describing in that five-year-old. And when we were trying to figure out what were some of the best approaches for him when he would melt down or become violent, it was on accident one day that I had him in my office and was talking to him when he began to hum and rock and I could hear him singing. And I asked him about, did he have any favorite songs? And he told me that he had once been told that he uh, sounded like Johnny Cash and he was kind of proud of that. So I just opened up on my computer a YouTube video of Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire and started playing that. And this young man just started singing um, in my office. And I realized that for him, a lot of times the way to de-escalate moments when he was struggling was to engage him in music. And when I had that conversation with you uh, several months ago, uh, it was like full circle realizing that those same patterns that might help a five-year-old may also help a 14 and 15-year-old. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I know you've worked with children in all of those ages. Well, I think that's uh, very true. But I think one of the things that happens, we see these big bodies and we think that child should be able to cognitively process his 
dysregulation and his anxiety when that really isn't the case. I mean, they are broken children in bigger bodies and they need that same bottom up. Their brainstem is most likely um, just as disorganized as that young child and they continue to need that bottom up um, sensory regulation. And, and once we begin to get some traction, you know, and you begin to see them um, able to self-regulate, then eventually, of course, at some point we begin the, the top-down piece and helping them to hang the language on their experiences and identify those emotions. But just like that young child, we most often gain traction by providing that bottom-up through that sensory regulation. Let's talk some practical takeaways because I think the hard part of that work and the work that you do is trying to provide some specific strategies for teachers or educators or school leaders who are working with students who've experienced trauma. And I know that you've written at least a couple of books about this, Dr. Sorrell. So I know in one podcast episode, we're not going to cover all the bases, but what would be some essentials that you, some essential advice that you would give school leaders or educators and some strategies they can be thinking about when working with students who've experienced trauma? Well, I think, of course, the strategies look a little bit different with different ages and early childhood, you know, lots of rhythm band instruments and rhythm sticks and gathering drums and and movement. Um, as we get into elementary school, there are things like Go Noodle. There are programs such as Me Moves. Actually, yoga has been found to be very helpful. Getting kids up, doing hand clapping rhythms. I always say, watch what children do quite naturally. You know, in elementary school, you see kids doing Miss Mary Mac with their hand rhythms and different kinds of rhythm and rhyme. Those are regulatory processes. And then as we get into middle school and high school, it can be something as simple as bouncing a basketball, giving children a sand tray as you're lecturing and talking, a child who has the opportunity to just doodle, and usually what happens rhythmically doodle in the sand. I say that kid who drums his pencils and sometimes drives people crazy, give them a mouse pad. Um, where they drum and it doesn't make noise. And, you know, in Dr. Perry's um, residential treatment facilities where they have schools, they have things like standing desks where kids can stand and rock, sitting at a, a, a desk that has a, a stationary bicycle, letting children sit on therapy balls. And, and But I think the, the danger here is I've been in places where we give everybody a therapy ball. <laughs> we give everybody the medicine when they don't need it. I say you only give the medicine to the children who need it. And so don't go out and buy therapy balls to, for every child to sit on, but just those kids who show you through their behavior that that's what they need. And so I think it's, you know, thinking outside the box and also realizing that it's an individual kind of thing because what might be regulating to one child will be dysregulating to others. Mm -hmm. um, typically, a lot of children regulate through gross motor movement, but there are some who regulate through fine motor, through doodling, through coloring while they're listening to a lecture, as I said, through a sand tray. Oh, another strategy that works with a majority of kids is therapeutic drumming. And I think finding that thing that every child enjoys doing and incorporating that in the school day and in different mechanisms and in different ways, even for small moments. So many of the suggestions that you're giving me remind me of a book I read this summer by Daniel Pink called When 
Wen, W-H-E-N, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And he has a chapter where he talks about how the research surrounding how rhythm, motion, uh, synchronized choral singing, those kinds of basic behaviors that we've used to see traditionally in schools through the fine arts, how powerful that can be for student learning. And I'm just really curious, Dr. Sorrells, in your work, where are you seeing that kind of work happening in schools and, and where might teachers need to be more aware of how to embed those kinds of practices in their work with children? Well, I think, unfortunately, one of the things that has happened with budget cuts is we have taken out the thing, the very things that, that children have trauma need, the arts, the, the chorus, the, the swing bands, and all of those extracurricular activities that provide that rhythm. And um, I actually just got back from Alexandria, Virginia, where some amazing things are happening. I was talking to a principal of an elementary school that is an, an arts immersion school. And unfortunately, we kind of look at these schools as anomalies and not just every day, but they're doing some, making some amazing changes. But he said, it's also, he says, it's helped me to understand why what we were doing in the first place with the arts is working. Mm. And so, you know, I, I see change coming in isolated pockets and as schools who are recognizing the need. I mean, and especially I think here in Oklahoma, yesterday, every apparently there was some television show where I kept having conversations with people saying, did you hear that Oklahoma has the highest rates of abuse in the nation? And so we're, we're at a crisis point, I think, here in our state. But I think the silver lining of all this is maybe we're going to hit the wall hard enough that we have to make change. Mm-hmm. And so I do see it coming. I see people are hungry to know. But it's going to be a process. It's not going to be a change that comes overnight. And sometimes when you understand the enormity of the issue, it, it's easy to get overwhelmed But just taking that one small piece and trying one thing and mastering that one thing and then going to the next thing and then going to the next thing is how over time we're going to make some substantial change. And I do see that happening. Well, it's encouraging when you can find practices that work. And I can tell you in my own practice, I probably talk to at least one principal a week who, when I'm having conversations about their school climate and culture, will ask me the question, how do I work with my kids that have the the hardest emotional disorders? How do I work with my most severe cases so that I can keep my school safe, but also serve this student? And I just want to put a, a quick plug in for Oklahoma listeners that Dr. Barb Sorrells is planning a presentation with COSA uh, March 13th, 2019, where she was going to spend an entire day walking educators through some processes of understanding what happens in the brains of students, but also specific strategies and takeaways for how to engage students so that they can become thriving members of that educational community. But Dr. Sorrells, I'm just really curious. I feel like sometimes when I talk to school leaders, especially that they feel overwhelmed. They feel like they want to meet the needs of these kids that they realize are in crisis, but they also feel this need to protect the the school-wide environment from danger. And so how do you balance that challenge and that opportunity of managing those students that have high anxiety or behavior issues while also trying to maintain a safe environment? And I know you've done that within the classroom setting as a teacher. So what advice would you have for teachers or school leaders of 
the mindset to have when trying to balance both of those needs? Well, that that's a very good question. And that really is the essence of the challenge because, you know, it only takes one chair thrower and desk tipper to completely undo a classroom and the other children don't feel safe. But there has to be a plan and it has to be a plan from the top down where administration sits down with teachers and they come up with how it's going to work in that particular situation because I don't believe there is a one size fits all scenario. I can only tell you some of the things that I've seen done that we have done. For example, back when I was in the classroom, I I did have that child who could demolish a classroom in 30 seconds. And so I had a plan and an agreement with one of my um, teacher friends and the principal as well. And so we would talk to the children and say, you know, sometimes we all have bad days and we have to help each other when we have bad days. And so we kind of practice it. One, one of our friends has a bad day. This is what we're going to do. We're going to get a book and, you, you know, we're going get to get our book from the library and then we're going to go out in the hall and we're going to line up here in the hall and sit down and just relax and read. And we practice that, you know, let's, let's practice what that's going to look like. So everybody gets a book and go out in the hall, show them where we're going to sit down. And I had a note on my desk that I would give to one of my more responsible children and either say, take it to Mrs. Jones or go take it to the principal's office. When the principal would come in, he was a big man um, who could, he would take this child in his arms and take him to his office and read him a story and rock him. And then at another occasions, you know, another teacher would come get my children where if the principal wasn't in the building, then I would deal with the child on a one-on-one basis. But I think there has to be that plan. Um, was recently in um, a, another city doing some training. And when I got back, a teacher uh, got in touch with me and, and she said uh, she went home and she got a beanbag chair and a lamp and some washcloths. And she set up this little corner in her room with the beanbag chair and some sensory things and some books. And she told the other teachers, when you have a child who's starting to escalate, send them to me. And so what happens is the child comes to her room. She gives them a wash, a wet washcloth to put on their forehead. They go to this quiet corner where they can read, wrap up in a blanket. And then she says, you let me know when you're ready to go back to class. And she said, it's working. And I think when we look at that, what are the principles operating here? First of all, there's a change of venue. And, and sometimes just simply getting that child out of that environment and moving them to a different environment can de-escalate. There's rhythm as that child walks down the hall, but that wet washcloth is a tangible symbol of empathy. It communicates to that child, I get you. I mean, there's no magic in a wet washcloth, but it's what it symbolizes to that child, that gesture of nurture. And then that child gets that sensory input through that blanket, through the beanbag chair, through the sensory, the sensory bottles, the fidgets, looking at books. And then I also share power. I don't tell you when to go back to class. You let me know when you're regulated and ready. And she said that slowly more teachers are getting on board with it. And that's the kind of thinking that I think it's going to take for us to come up with strategies that work in our situation, but it has to be a cooperative thing. Um, It can't just be a teacher by yourself trying to figure it out, but everybody has to be on board and there has to be a plan. Mm. I love that. And that's such an approach that requires 
a community mindset, everyone being a part of coming up with what the strategies and solutions are for the kids that we're serving. And I know in Oklahoma, often I'll hear as principals, especially asking, you know, what work as we are reaching out to elected officials and asking for more support for our schools, you know, how can we get more support and resources for providing people that can help serve children, especially children in crisis, whether that's additional counselors or teachers assistants. But one of the more, more difficult things that I see happening, not just in Oklahoma, but nationwide are communities that look at some of our neediest kids and think, well, we don't know how to manage or help those kiddos. So we're just going to isolate our kids who seem to be functioning appropriately away from those kinds of kiddos, uh, maybe silo them in, in their own kind of school. And, and we miss out on opportunities to include some of our neediest kiddos with our kiddos who may not be as needy and, and to build a community together. And I think part of the knee-jerk reaction I've seen in the last several years is just people trying to separate these groups of kids from one another instead of figuring out how do we embed these children back into our schools so they can become active participants in their schools, not just uh, identified as needy, but then how do we how do we build the skills back into them so that they can become resilient? And so that's one of the reasons that I love your work, Dr. Sorrells, is that you don't only identify the need, but you're also providing skills and strategies for teachers and educators to build resilience in students. Well, Principal Matters listeners, Dr. Sorrell's book is Reaching and Teaching Children Exposed to Trauma. And Dr. Sorrells, I know you do a lot of uh, consulting, school visits, as well as trainings. Uh, wh what's a way, if listeners in the Oklahoma area or outside of our state, if they'd like to connect with you, what are some ways that they can find your resources or connect with you for more information? Um, probably the best way is to go to my website, the Institute for Childhood Education. And on that first page, you will see a little icon that says, contact us. And that email will come directly to me. My phone number is also on that website. Give me a call. And all of my resources are also available for purchase on that website as well. And you also have a podcast. Can you put a plug in for that? Yes, I um, I actually do a podcast with my daughter. Um, this is targeted for parents. That podcast can be found on iTunes, and it's called Nurturing the Heart of a Child. And I also have another website called Dr. Barbara. Um, it is basically a blog for parents um, that just addresses parenting issues. Um, so there are Check that one out too. I'm just so proud of the work that you're doing and so grateful that, uh, that you've been willing to connect and teach me as well as other educators from the wealth of knowledge that you have and the work that you're doing here and across the U.S. Uh, any parting thoughts or ideas you want to share before we go? Well, I would say that the journey is worth it um, to see a child change and to see a child heal. Um, from the inside out, um, there's nothing more gratifying than that kind of work. So it, it's hard work, but it's well worth the effort. Well, thank you so much. Well, Principal Matters listeners, I will link in the show notes Dr. Sorrell's website and her contact information. Dr. Sorrells, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And thank you, Principal Matters listeners, for the work that you're doing, because what you do matters. And we'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.